0: We've been uh, considering together the appearances of Jesus to various folks uh, after his resurrection, as we see in John 20 and 21. And today we're going to consider uh, Jesus' appearance to Thomas. It's found on page uh, 1687 in your Bibles, John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24. John 20, verse 24, page 1687. As we prepare to hear God's word, let's pray. God, we come to your word. We come to your word with anticipation, with a desire to hear from you, with the hope that you will speak into our lives, into our questions, into our doubts, That you will speak so that we can not only hear your truth, but that we can know you, that we can know your son, Jesus, and that we would find faith and life in his name. Amen. John chapter 20. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "'We've seen the Lord.' But he said to them, "'Unless I see the nail marks in his hands "'and put my finger where the nails were "'and put my hand into his side, "'I will not believe it.' A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' And then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here. "'See my hands. "'Reach out your hand and put it into my side.' Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. When I was in sixth grade, my teacher was usually wary of our promises. So if we as a class would promise her better behavior, she'd say, I'm from Missouri, show me. Missouri is the show me state if you didn't know. My sixth grade teacher had to see it to believe it. She would only believe our word if she saw it in action. Maybe Thomas was from Missouri. He wasn't ready to believe it just because the disciples said so. He needed some objective facts. He wouldn't take the disciples' word that they had seen Jesus. He needed to see Jesus with his own eyes. We live in a suspicious age. Most of us have been assaulted by too-good-to-be-true offers. In the mail, by email, at our door, through phone calls. People are always trying to deal us something. If you've received any offers from a Nigerian lawyer on behalf of his client who died and left you in the will for millions, you know what I'm talking about. Our culture, the world is filled with doubt. The FBI investigates the president. The branches of government wage war against each other the media is mistrusted, and even investigators are being investigated. There's little trust to go around. In fact, a leading global communications marketing firm named Edelman publishes an annual trust barometer. This report gives an indication of what the levels of trust are in 28 different countries. Their most recent report shows that trust has plummeted across the United States. In 2018, levels of trust in the United States suffered the largest recorded drop in the survey's history. Trust fell by nine points from 52 to 43 percent among the general population, and it plunged 23 points from 68 to 45 percent among the informed public. It places the U.S. in the lower quarter of the 28 country index in some cases countries like russia and south africa have a greater degree of trust than the united states the collapse of trust is driven by this overwhelming lack of faith in government which fell from 47 to 33% in the general population and from 63 to 33% in the informed public and the remaining institutions of media business ngos experienced declines of 10 to 20 points the president and CEO of Edelman stated, the United States is an enduring and unprecedented crisis of trust. He goes on to say, this is the first time that a massive drop in trust has not been linked to a pressing economic issue or catastrophe. In fact, it's the ultimate irony that it's happening at a time of prosperity with the stock market and employment rates in the U.S. at record highs. The root cause of this fall is the lack of objective facts and rational discourse. And this lack of trust has even spread to the church. There are many who doubt the trustworthiness of the church, it's one of the main reasons why people turn away from faith. I had a friend in seminary, born and raised in the Christian Reformed Church. He was smart, academically excellent, well-read, with an answer for just about anything. He began to doubt what he believed. As his ministry career progressed, his doubts increased. He became less convinced of creedal formulations. He lamented the failures of the church, from the Inquisition to the Crusades to European religious wars to blessing imperialism and slave trading and ownership to an anti-science bent to being in favor of the status quo rather than social justice. Now he knows, he knows that faith isn't sight, and he knows that he's no exception, that he has failed to take opportunities when presented to be prophetic, to take risks, to be more like Jesus. But he's afflicted by a not knowing. He even wrote a book about it. The title is, Not Sure, A Pastor's Journey from Faith to Doubt. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. So they exclaimed to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. That's not true for us. We've never seen or heard Jesus in the flesh. Jesus isn't around. We can't see him we can't touch him. There's no way that we can consult him face to face. Maybe on Easter we celebrate his resurrection. But once Easter's passed, what do we have? John, who wrote the words of our text, knew this. He wrote to people who had never seen Jesus in the flesh. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, he writes. For most of John's audience, the stories came second or third hand. A child who was six on East, the first Easter morning would be nearly 70 by the time John wrote his gospel. It's hard to not see and still believe. I mean, there are times that we pray and it feels like we're just going through the motions. Sometimes our prayers don't seem to rise any higher than the ceiling. There are times, perhaps when death attacks, that we're buffeted by skepticism. As someone once noted, a God who is really God offers life beyond death, but a God that we've made up will only die with us. It seems that too often our beliefs can be invaded by creeping doubt. We don't like the, I have to see it to believe it feeling that takes over our hearts. We want to believe, but it's hard. We face a world of doubt. I mean, I've heard of people who've seen UFOs. Some of them tell convincing stories, but I'm not going to believe it until I see one for myself. People have seen weeping statues of the Virgin Mary. People have had near-death or out-of-body experiences. Someone wrote to me the other day about seeing an aura. What do we make of these experiences? Don't most of us dismiss them as unimportant hearsay? Maybe we want faith, but there's so much in our world that challenges our faith. So much that leads us to wonder about truth. So much that seems too good to be true. I guess we keep good company with Thomas. Much as the disciples wanted to share their excitement with him, he wasn't having any of it. it. He was a realist. He didn't go in for fairy tales and talk of seeing Jesus was a fairy tale to him. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. I don't think most of us would be much different from Thomas. I mean, if we were confronted with what the disciples said to him, would we be less skeptical? I mean, imagine if someone came up to you three days days after a funeral only to say they'd run into the dead person. I don't believe any of us would say, Whoa, that's wonderful. We'd say, Right. I don't believe it when I see it. That's Thomas. Not more or less of a doubter than any of us. He simply was a disciple who would often say what was on everyone's mind. Or he'd ask the question that most often they wanted to ask. Just look at how the Gospel of John presents him. The first time we encounter Thomas is when Jesus is planning to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, because Lazarus has died. Now, Judea at the time was dangerous territory for him. Jesus and his disciples had recently been to Jerusalem, but they left when the religious authorities were ready to stone him. And then Jesus gets word that Lazarus, who lived near Jerusalem, is seriously ill. So Jesus decides to go to see him, to head back into the danger zone. And and the disciples protest, But Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? And then Jesus explains to the disciples that Lazarus isn't sick, he's dead, and that Jesus is going, as he said, to wake him up. And Thomas said to the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. None of the super apostles, Peter, James, John, none of them offer such support. Thomas is the one to courageously step up. The next time that we meet Thomas in the Gospel of John is when Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room for the Last Supper. Jesus returned to Jerusalem and raised Lazarus from the dead. The religious authorities were enraged. They wielded the power of death. And so now Jesus showed himself stronger than death by simply showing up. And when the Passover came, Jesus gathered with his disciples to celebrate. And he scandalizes his disciples by wrapping a servant's towel around his waist and washing the disciples' feet. He reveals what the cross would confirm, that God's power is servant power. A power that extends itself for others, not over others. And then Jesus begins to talk about his mission, his destiny, and God's future. And he tells the disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. And then, they will, and then he will come back to take them to be with him. And he concludes, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And the disciples didn't have a clue what he was talking about. His teaching is incomprehensible to them. But Thomas... He is bold to speak what the other disciples may have been thinking. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus simply says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Thomas doesn't say anything more. After all, he's shown himself to be a no-nonsense kind of guy. He's all about practicalities. And he doesn't seem to have time for mystery or imagination. He simply shoots straight. Jesus, we really don't have any idea what you're talking about. And when Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas leaves it at that. And when Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room after his resurrection... Thomas isn't around. Remember, the disciples are locked up. They're hiding in fear, except not Thomas. He's not there. He's out and about. Maybe he's gone on with his life. Gone to grab a Starbucks. Maybe he went to the park just to sit for a while. But when he returns and the disciples tell him that they've seen the Lord, we hear those infamous words that give him the title, Doubting Thomas. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Was Thomas a doubter? Perhaps. This much is true. Like many of us, he puts conditions on believing. He wants evidence. He wants to be an eyewitness. Let me touch his flesh and blood. Something this incredible, who's to blame him? Would any of us be any different? And then Jesus shows up. Eight days later, Jesus comes back into the same room. He doesn't come back to dismiss Thomas. Doesn't return to shame him for failing to trust what the other disciples had told him. There's no rebuke here. Jesus speaks the same greeting he offered the disciples earlier. Peace be with you. And then Jesus turns directly to Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Jesus showed up. I don't know if Thomas expected him, but when Jesus showed, obviously the evidence was overwhelming. Jesus speaks firmly to Thomas here. Bring your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand and thrust it into my side. It's as if Jesus calls Thomas's bluff. Stop doubting and believe. Stop being faithless. Be faithful. And suddenly all the evidence that Thomas thought he'd need in order to believe becomes unimportant. Everything that he wanted was right in front of him. And his demands evaporate. The story is told of a, a woman at a prayer conference. She approached a prayer counselor to tell him about an experience she had. She explained to him that when others heard what happened, they thought she was crazy. Here's the story she told. A long time ago, her husband had a heart attack. He was in the ICU. She was told her husband would not live through the night. And during the night, as she sat by her husband, she saw a bright light in the doorway. And she knew it was death that had come to get her husband. She stood up, put her hands out, and said, No, you can't have him. But the light came closer. And again she said, No, you can't have him. And then the next thing that she remembers is the nurses picking her up off the floor. But her husband turned a corner. He got better. He was out of intensive care in a day, out of the hospital in five days, and he lived another five years. The woman said that she was sure that she kept death away from her husband. And then she said to the prayer counselor, I just don't believe it. And then she asked, do you believe it? The counselor said, yes. Again, the woman said, I don't believe it. And the prayer counselor said, did you ever think that the light you saw in the doorway was not death coming to get your husband, but Jesus who had come to heal him? Some scholars wonder whether Thomas had faith before this incident. It all revolves really around Jesus' words, stop doubting and believe. And there's a couple of ways to understand this statement. Jesus could be saying, do not be without faith or do not continue to be without faith. If we interpret it this way, it would assume that Thomas did not have faith. But it's also possible that what Jesus is saying here is, do not become without faith. That is, Jesus is telling Thomas not to let his faith slide. Despite your doubts, believe. I think maybe it's the latter one that's in play here. What we do realize is that there's an amount of doubt that lives in all believers. That doubt and belief stand side by side in our lives. At times, doubt can be a ticket that keeps faith moving. That honest doubt can help form faith, can help grow faith. That Jesus isn't disturbed by questions that are asked. It's unbelieving doubt that's Thomas' problem. And Jesus wants his followers to have a faith that moves beyond doubt, even though questions remain. That's why Jesus continues, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Faith means believing in Jesus even though we don't have Jesus standing right in front of us. We don't have that undeniable proof of Jesus in the same room with us. But what we do have is the miracle and the blessing of faith. Scott Jose notes, to paraphrase a traditional aphorism, if you don't have faith, then there will never be evidence enough to convince you. And if you do have faith, no evidence is needed. Without faith, no evidence is sufficient. With faith, no evidence is necessary. See, we believe not because of the evidence. Yes, John has provided us with signs throughout his gospel. He tells us that. And even this sign of Jesus appearing before Thomas, but it's not by the signs alone that we believe. We believe in faith because Jesus calls it forth from us. We believe because he invites us into this miracle of belief. Everybody doubts. But don't let doubts carry the day. Stop doubting and believe. Believe. It's interesting that Thomas doesn't take Jesus up on his invitation, doesn't extend his finger to the evidence, doesn't thrust a fist forward. What he does is offer profound words of belief. My Lord and my God. It's the first time in this gospel that someone addresses the word God directly to Jesus. You remember how John started his gospel? He said these important words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then throughout the gospel, through Galilee and Jerusalem, moments of glory, times of doom, all woven together, they finally meet in the cross. And now the reality of the word who is God comes clear in the testimony of Thomas. Someone tells that Thomas is this muddled, dogged disciple determined not to be taken in, not to believe just anything. And he comes face to face with Jesus and he sees God. It's a huge mystery that this Jesus who went to the cross, who had nail marks in his hands, who had a wound in his side, he's not a ghost, not a pretender. It's Jesus. God is this Jesus who escaped from the grave and clothes and spices this Word-made flesh who dwelt among us is now resurrected. And he looks for all the world like he belongs here. At the same time, looks like he's bound for another world. My Lord. My God. And with this simple confession, Thomas shows us that faith's not about reciting creedal formulations It's not a matter of saying I do to faith statements that are put before us. That true faith recognizes Jesus truly as God, Lord of our lives, Lord of our lives. These aren't just some words that we say. To say that he is Lord makes a difference. John Ortberg once tried to help us understand what it means that Jesus is Lord of our lives. He began by calling to mind the day that parents first bring a child home. Your baby's in a car seat. They look tiny and fragile. You drive 20 miles an hour under the speed limit. Every bump you turn around and check to make sure the baby's okay. It's a really scary day. And then, notes Ortberg, that kid turns 16. And another really scary moment happens. You hand over the car keys. And you move from the driver's seat to the passenger's seat. And he says, it's a scary moment. When you hand someone else the keys, it is a big moment. You're no longer the one choosing the destination. No more choosing the route. You don't get to choose the speed. You're in the ride-along seat. The driver is the one in control. What many of us want is a ride-along, Jesus. We want him in the passenger seat. We want him handy should we run into problems. But in the driver's seat? No thanks. Oh, yeah, I want Jesus in the car. Maybe I have a health problem. He could help with that. Maybe I have difficulty with somebody at work. He could help with that. But driving? I mean, if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge anymore. Not in charge of my life. Not in charge of my wallet. It's no longer my agenda. Put Jesus in control of the car and I can't satisfy my ambitions. I don't get to do whatever I want. I don't get to go wherever I want. Here's what Thomas is doing. He got out of the driver's seat. With this simple confession, he entered a completely different life. My Lord and my God. Like most of the first century Jews, Thomas was looking for someone to guide his life. He was looking for a Messiah. And what he discovered was that the Messiah he was looking for is Jesus. And Thomas's life was never going to be the same. He gave himself over to the one who showed him what life was all about. He gave himself over to the one that he'd been following. He didn't need to poke a finger in. Not anymore. Because now he sees who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. So what about us? I mean, what do we do? in the midst of a culture of suspicion, we can be ones who want to seek proof. Let me stick my finger in. Let me see Jesus standing right in front of me. But does faith need evidence? And if it does, maybe it's not really faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Faith that simply acknowledges Jesus as Lord and God. Faith that hands him the keys so that more than believing, we discover life in his name. Let's pray together. Jesus, my Lord and my God. Our Lord and our God. We are so grateful for the faith that you've given us so that we can see that our God is Jesus Christ. And we can see that our Lord is Jesus Christ. And that we can find life in you, Jesus Christ. That we can live for you. Not for ourselves. Not for our curiosities. Not because of the evidence that we seek. Not because of the desire we have for the concrete. We can live for you because of who you are. Our Lord. Our God. By the power of your Spirit, would you move us to be your people of faith. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.